0: We're going to finish up this morning in the first epistle of John, chapter 5. We've been going through this epistle, looking at how John is trying to challenge his readers, people who are very close to his heart, to step out of lifestyles of sin into a lifestyle of righteous living. Walking in the light, and he is in the light. And ultimately, walking in love, because that is the best representation of God, is when we walk in his nature, and his nature is the nature of love. Several times we've seen how John says, if we're not walking in love, we really are on thin ice. We are in a position, perhaps, where we should not even call ourselves children of God. At one point, he even says, how can you love a God whom you have not seen when you Don't even love his children whom you have seen. And so John is really challenging his readers. He's also warning them, cautioning them to beware of the fact that there are false teachers out there, people who are taking the gospel of Jesus Christ and infecting it with things about Jesus that simply are not true. Now, the Apostle Paul dealt with this same issue. The Apostle Paul struggled with what were called Judaizers. These are essentially people who had come out of the Jewish faith and trusted in Jesus as the Messiah. They believed that Jesus was the Messiah. But they began to alter Paul's message of salvation by grace through faith and began to teach that, in fact... You had to believe in Jesus and keep the whole law of Moses. And of course, in Acts chapter 15, the church had a council where they said, that's not the case. We are saved by faith, whether Jew or Gentile. And then they gave some specific directions for the new Gentile believers. John is dealing with some False teaching, that is a little bit different. It focuses more on the person of Jesus Christ, and we'll talk about that a little bit this morning. But it's very interesting to, to me even today that there are many cults out there that utilize the name of Jesus Christ. In fact, they will utilize a version of the Bible that they have altered to fit their doctrines about who Jesus Christ is. The New World Translation, the Jehovah's Witnesses in John chapter 1, the Jehovah's Witnesses say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. Very small little thing in the Jehovah's Witnesses Bible, but it makes a huge difference about who Jesus is. And that's what John is addressing here. And as I said, we'll talk about that a little bit. This message is titled, Faith Working Through Love. And I got that title out of the epistle to the Galatians. Paul the Apostle is addressing this issue of Judaizing, taking the gospel and and, and infecting it with the law. And he says, For through the Spirit we eagerly await By faith, the righteousness for which we hope. So we wait for that uh, righteousness through the Spirit by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value whatsoever. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Now, that's a pretty strong statement, but the Apostle Paul is very unequivocally telling his readers, nothing matters whether you're circumcised, whether you're uncircumcised, whether you were born a Jew, born a Gentile. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, and that faith expresses itself through love, then you are a child of God, part of his family, and you have been saved from sin. And that's the same message that the Apostle John is trying to convey as well. And he writes in chapter 5, verse 1, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commandments. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commandments. And his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So right here, John is getting straight to the point. He is saying that through faith in Jesus Christ, You are born of God. You become a new creation. The Holy Spirit enters into you. And all things, the Bible says, become new. You have been forgiven of all of your sin. You have been washed clean. You are a child of God. And then he says, if you indeed are a child of God, you are going to love your brothers and sisters because they too have been born of God. They too bear the image of God. They, too, have believed in the same Savior as you. And for you to not love your brother and sister who come to worship with you, even though perhaps they have a different background from you, perhaps a different political persuasion, you still have to love them because they look like Jesus. They're covered with the robes of his righteousness. You must love the one born of the Father as you have been born of the Father. And you're born of the Father, as we read there, through faith in Christ. And if we love God, it says we will carry out his commandments. Now, in the Old Testament, there are 613 commandments to carry out. How many of you carried them out this past week? Come on now. Did you get messed up on 134? What did Jesus say were the greatest commandments? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and your neighbor as yourself. He distilled all of those 613 commandments into the simple truth of love. Do you love God? Do you love your neighbor? Augustine, the church theologian, said this. He said, love God and do as you please. If you love God, that sort of takes care of everything else. And that's why John says that the commandments of God are not burdensome. They're not easy. Sometimes it's not easy to love. We have to intentionally make an effort to step out of our skins sometime to put off the old man, and to love one another. There are many, many times where it absolutely takes the new nature for me to love other people, and I'm pretty sure that there are many times, probably more times, that people have to step out of their old nature into their new nature to love me. That's how it works. That's why we've been given this Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit, the fruit of which is love. So the commandments of God are not burdensome. It's simply to love God and to love one another through the power of his Holy Spirit. And when we do that, we walk in the light as he is in the light. I received something on my truck this week from the Seventh-day Adventists, and it was telling me that unless I worship on the seventh day that I have taken the mark of the beast. And that is essentially, at least hardline Seventh-day Adventist theology. If you don't worship on the seventh day, if you worship on Sunday, then you have taken the mark of the beast because the seal of God is the seventh day. And yet, I read in Romans chapter 14... That Paul says, don't let anyone judge you with regards to a Sabbath or a holy day. Those are just a shadow of the things to come. The fullness, as Paul wrote, is in Christ. Now, I'm calling out some some cultish behavior here, some cultish groups. The the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Seventh-day Adventists, the Mormons. Now, some of you may have Mormon friends. I have some Mormon friends. But this week, I went through mormon.org and I read their statement of faith. And I was reading it, and I was thinking, well, this sounds pretty conventional. This sounds pretty mainstream. This sounds Christian. Until I got into some of the finer points about what the words they were saying really meant. And they transform Who Jesus is. From the creator God, again, too much like the Jehovah's Witnesses, to a God. Not the sovereign, almighty, eternal God, through whom all things hold themselves together and subsist, but a God who followed the teachings of Moroni and who became ultimately a God. Same is true of who they call the Father. So uh, it's not that I'm trying to trash these guys. It's simply that I'm trying to, as John was to his readers, warn you that there are dangers out there that use the name of Jesus Christ that are poison. They have a little bit of strychnine in the cup, just enough to kill you. It looks good on the surface, but within the drink, it is deadly. We must, it says, the parentheses here in verse 1 and verse 5 says that we must believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the eternal, sovereign God. And we're going to be talking a little bit about how John deals with that. Verse 6, he writes, This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies. Because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And the three are in agreement. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater. Because it is the testimony of God which he has given about his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. First off, the statement that he came by the water and the blood. A little confusing, huh? What does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus came by the water and the blood? Well, John here is directly addressing Uh, teaching that had risen in his day in the city of Ephesus, which is where John was living at this time. It was an early precursor of what was to become Gnostic thought. It was essentially a very complex system of belief based upon hidden or secret knowledge that these teachers would step in and say, this has been revealed to me, and in order for you to be truly saved, you must... Accept what I am saying. And there was a teacher in the city of Ephesus at the time of the Apostle John. And his name was Serenthus. And Serenthus taught that Jesus was just a man, just like anyone else. Born of a woman, born of a man. And that at the baptism of Jesus Christ, the, the Christ Spirit came upon him. And he became the Christ at his baptism. And he remained the Christ up until the point that Judas betrayed him. And then the Christ spirit left him. So it was not Jesus, the son of God, who was crucified, but it was Jesus, the man. And so John is directly attacking Serenthus' teaching that Jesus was only the Christ from his baptism and up until his death. Because the truth is, Jesus, as we all know from reading the the gospel story in Luke chapter 2, Jesus was the one that the angels sang praise to. Jesus was the one who was the child who was to come, who was the everlasting God, whose goings forth, it says in Micah chapter 5, were from eternity. So this Serenthus had brought this teaching in, and John is combating it, and he's saying he was God when he was baptized. He was God when he was crucified. He was always the Christ. And Serenthus, no doubt, at one point in time, probably was a member of the Christian fellowship, perhaps even worshipped with John the Apostle there in Ephesus, but then speared off into this false teaching and began to introduce this secret knowledge about Jesus Christ. Irenaeus, who's a church historian who wrote against heresies, wrote of a time where John, and this may have been apocryphal, who knows, but it sort of reveals the understanding people had at that time about John's feelings towards Serenthus. John was invited to go into a building where Serenthus was, and John responded, God forbid if I walk into that building and share the same space, space with Serenthus, surely the walls will collapse and the, the roof will fall upon me. Because he believed Serenthus to be a false teacher. True or not, we don't know. But this is what he's correcting. And, and again, this is just what was going on at the time. Throughout the ages and even unto today, as I have pointed out to you, there are numerous false notions, false teachings about who Jesus Christ is. Now, John says here that there are three that testify. The Spirit, the water, and the blood. And when he says the water and the blood, he's talking about at the baptism of Jesus Christ, how the Father said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And how the Spirit came upon him at that point. And how at the cross, the Son refused to shine for three hours while Jesus hung upon the cross carrying our sin in testimony of the fact that he had become sin for us, that he was indeed the Son of God. See, the Holy Spirit knows exactly who Jesus is. The Holy Spirit testifies of Jesus Christ. And here's the deal. This is what John is saying. The Holy Spirit If the Holy Spirit is within you, if you are a true follower of Christ, then you are going to accept the testimony of God the Spirit about God the Son. John doesn't really have a concern that you will follow after the right teaching. He says here, he who believes in the Son accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar. So if you alter... The truth about Jesus Christ, then John would assert that you were never a child of God. Jesus said in John chapter 10, he said, my sheep know me and they hear my voice. And when I call out to them, they come to me. And no one can snatch them out of my hand. And my father, who is even greater than me, Jesus said, has them in his hand, and no one can take them from the Father. So John is repeating this same message. If you are a true believer, you will come to a true understanding of who Jesus Christ is because the spirit of truth indwells you, and the word of truth lies open before you. See, here's how it works. True belief is belief in the person, of truth, Jesus Christ, as revealed by the Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, to the people of the truth, the church, by the word of truth, the Bible. The Holy Spirit's the author of this book, people. When you get into this book as the Holy Spirit teaches you, and as John said in in chapter 2, you don't have need that any man teach you. The Holy Spirit within you will take this word and will teach it to your heart. You will come to a true understanding of who Jesus is unless you are not his child. How do I know if I'm his child, Greg? How do I know if I have eternal life? He says right here, this is the testimony God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. Very similar to what John recorded Jesus saying in John chapter 3. Jesus said, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. So what is eternal life? What does it mean to possess eternal life? It means simply to be eternal in the Son, to believe in the Son. Now, what is faith? What is true biblical faith? The first thing about biblical faith is that it must have content. In other words, you have to believe what this book says about Jesus Christ. You have to believe the truth about Jesus Christ. You can't amend it. You can't alter it. You can't affect it through any other notion than what is recorded in this book. Otherwise, you're just like Serenthus. You're just thrusting on to Jesus a belief about who he is that does not come from the Spirit of God. So you must have true content. And that content starts from this book. But you also have to have connection. There has to be relationship to what you believe. If you believe in God, Jesus said you will love him. And if you love him, then you will have connection to those born of him. So you have to have a connection to what the truth is saying. Not just the content, but what is it telling you? It's telling you that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he came to bear your sin, and that if you believe in him, that your sin will be forgiven because he bore it for you. You must have connection to that message. And finally, and this is the most important, you have to have commitment to the content and to the connection. There are a lot of people who understand what this book says correctly, understand what this book says. And they might even have a connection to it. I had an instructor in in college who was able to teach the Bible as literature. That was the class I was in, the Bible as literature. He was actually an excellent teacher. He had a connection to what the Bible's message was. But he wasn't committed to it. He was not a believer. See, you can't just believe things about Jesus and be saved. You have to believe in him. Right now, I have tendonitis in my right elbow. And I have this anti-inflammatory pill that it says on the labeling that if I take it, it will help with my tendonitis. So, There's the message. Take this, and it will assist with the inflammation of your tendonitis. Okay, good content. I'm connected to it. I'm reading it. I understand that it's telling me to take one of these pills, no more than three a day, and the inflammation will begin to wear off. But you know what? It's been sitting on my table in front of the place that I eat breakfast for the past two weeks, and I haven't taken it until just yesterday. My arm, oh, man, elbow hurts. Ouch. Yeah, i got to start taking that anti-inflammatory pill that's sitting right in front of me every morning. That's the commitment that I'm talking about. You have to commit your life to Jesus Christ. You have to take action with your life in order to make that faith come alive. That's the same thing that James said. He said, faith without works being by itself is dead. The demons believe the content. The demons have a connection to who Jesus is. They recognized him on his earthly ministry. You are the son of God. Don't send us to the place of torment before it's time. But the, Jesus, or the demons were not committed to him. They rebelled against him. That is true biblical faith. Connecting content, connection, and commitment to Jesus Christ. John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence that we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. It is God's will that none perish, that all come to the knowledge of the truth and are saved. That, unfortunately, is not what is happening in the world, is it? But that is God's will. And if we ask anything according to his will, he will hear us. So if we repent of our sin, if we confess our need for Jesus, if we recognize the content of the message, connect to it and commit to it, then we will receive what we have asked of him. And indeed, what we ask of him is eternal life, relationship with him. I had some Jehovah's Witnesses come to me one time, knock on my door and begin to speak to me about their message. And, of course, I knew that the Jehovah's Witnesses, part of their doctrine is that they can never know for sure if they're saved. They never know for sure if they've knocked on enough doors. And so I simply asked them, I said, do you believe that you have eternal life? Do you believe here, as you talk to me today, that you have eternal life? And they said, well, no, we can't know. And I said, well, that's interesting. And I took them to this verse, and it says, because I know that I have eternal life. And he here you are trying to convince me to follow after you, and you don't have a clue about whether or not you have eternal life. What's the problem with this picture? We can know that we have eternal life because it's God's will to give it to us through His Son, Jesus Christ. He went to extraordinary lengths. He sent His only begotten Son, that whomsoever should believe upon Him should not perish, but should have everlasting life. He will hear us, and we will receive what... We have asked of him. Now, if you see a brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray, and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. That is to say, people who have yet to hear the message of Jesus Christ or people who have yet to make a decision about Jesus Christ, all of those people fit this category. All of us at one point in time fit this category. Perhaps even after we did come to faith. We have fallen into sin, but it's not a sin that leads to death. This is a tricky topic, and I'm going to try to describe it to you. John says earlier in chapter 2 that I write these things to you, brothers and sisters, so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And he says earlier in chapter 1, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So we have that promise. We don't want to sin. If we're walking in the light, we will not sin because of the new nature that we have, the Holy Spirit indwelling us. But occasionally, the simple fact is that we do sin. It's not something that we choose to do. It's not something that we continue in as Christians. And we recognize it, we repent of it, and we move on. That is the sin that does not lead unto death. But there is a sin, John says here, that leads to death. I'm not saying that you should pray about that. Now this is, as I said, challenging language here. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is a sin that does not lead to death. That is the sin that is repented of, followed by faith placed in Jesus Christ. The sin that leads to death is the sin that is committed by the person who has been presented with the gospel of Jesus Christ, who has an understanding of what the message is, perhaps has even attended church. I loved what Jenny said this morning. Church isn't necessarily the answer. Jesus is the answer. Church can help you, But Jesus is the one that's the answer. The person who has been exposed to Jesus Christ as the sacrifice for sin, as the one through whom salvation comes. The writer to Hebrews says this, it is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, and who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. In other words, people, this is as good as it gets. There's not another sacrifice that we are awaiting. There is no new revelation that is coming. The truth is in Jesus. Salvation is in Jesus. The writer to Hebrews later in chapter 10 says, if we deliberately keep on sinning, After we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remains then no sacrifice for sin, only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume all of the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot and who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant? That sanctified them and insulted the Spirit of grace. So, the sin that leads to death is a rejection of Jesus Christ. That's it. If you reject Jesus Christ, if you've heard the message, you've been in church, you've tasted of the power of the Spirit, you've seen the work of God in people's lives, and yet you say, Not for me, I'm going some other way, then it's impossible. There's no other sacrifice that remains. There's no other pathway that you are going to find that will bring you before God's throne of grace. That's what John is saying here. Sin that is repented of, faith that is placed in Jesus Christ is always a sin that does not lead to death. But sin without repentance, sin that is continued in, rejection of Jesus Christ as the atoning sacrifice, then you're on a pathway to flaming fire. It's a hard message, but it's the message of the Bible. But we know, verse 18, that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. See, now John is writing about these guys who have been in their fellowship, who have stood among them, who have listened to the teaching of the apostles and have said, no, there's something more. I have a special revelation. Jesus isn't really the Son of God. He was just the Christ from the baptism to his betrayal. And if you want to follow God, you'll follow my special revelation. John says, no. If you're truly born of God, you will not continue to sin. That is to reject Jesus Christ. The one who is born of God is kept safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. In other words, you will not be deceived. The Holy Spirit will lead you to the truth because he is the spirit of truth. We know that we are the children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one, but we know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. Don't be concerned. Have you ever heard someone say, I'm concerned I committed the sin against the Holy Spirit and I can never be forgiven? Have you ever heard someone say that? I've dealt with a lot of people who are under that condemnation. It's so sad because the truth is so simple. If you trust in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, you are a child of God. And the Holy Spirit of God will lead you to understanding of Him, of who Jesus is. And you can trust that the Holy Spirit will be faithful to truly reveal Jesus to you. And we are in him who is true by being in his son, Jesus Christ, who is the true God and eternal life. So it's it's simple. But Satan, the deceiver, and unfortunate souls who are led astray by him will take you away from the simple, simple path of faith in Jesus Christ and what He has done. Who has overcome the world, John asks. Is it not those who have trusted in Jesus Christ? Now get this. Understand this. If you don't get anything else, I say, this is what I want you to understand. We don't ov- overcome the world by our great faith, by our fabulous understanding of who Jesus is. We overcome the world by being in Him. Jesus said, John 16, 33, take courage. In the world you will have tribulation, but I have overcome the world. And if you are in Jesus Christ this morning, you have overcome the world as well by your faith in Him. You stand in the position of an overcomer. And I'm going to read this for you just because it's good stuff. I wasn't planning on doing this, but i got to finish with this. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. How will He not also, along with Him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is sitting at the right hand of God, interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ? Shall trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long, and we're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No! In all of these things, we have become more than conquerors through him who loved us. And I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor the present, nor the future, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Woohoo! We win because of him. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great gospel of Jesus Christ and the love that is revealed to us through him and by the Holy Spirit that is in each one of us. Lord God, I pray that that love unleashes itself in our lives, that we would begin to walk in the light as he is in the light, that we would begin to love you in a new and a fresh and a vibrant way and that we would also love those born of you our brothers and sisters, those who walk alongside of us, Lord, and that you would, as you have promised in this passage of Scripture, keep us from the evil one and give us the victory in Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Let's go ahead and rise up. We're going to close uh, with a responsive hymn, hymn number 500, Spirit of God, Descend.